Good morning, church. I laugh because uh, Pastor Kurt does our um, preaching schedule each year, and uh, he kind of creates the schedule, and we all have a, a part in um, getting assigned certain texts. And for some reason, I've looked through Nehemiah, and he keeps giving me these really challenging chapters um, where there's these long lists of names. So I don't know how he wormed his way out of a couple of these chapters, but, but he's given me a couple chapters. And so um, I just, I just am, I've been encouraged and I've been challenged because the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, right? And so there's times where, you know, sometime during this week I started asking the question, Really? Nehemiah chapter 7, is it profitable? Is it, is it um, something that we need to really grab a hold of? Does, is God speaking through his word to us? And so this morning, my prayer, my uh, encouragement is that we open up our hearts and that we open up our minds to what God has to say as we open up his word. Because I do believe, and I, I was convicted this week, that there is a message from God that we all need to hear through his word here in Nehemiah chapter 7. Amen? Amen. Well, um, about several months ago, I had the opportunity to take my family to Hawaii. That was a huge blessing, a huge gift um, that we were able to uh, spend some time together as a family in such a tropical paradise as Hawaii. But one of the things that my kids love to do when we hit the beach is they love to build. And so you see here a picture of a couple of my kids building their sandcastle paradise and one of the things that's uh, always interesting to me as I watch them is even if they finish the construction, there's a sense that they're never done. Because the ocean is always on attack, trying to destroy what has been created. And so they spend hours, it would take me 52 days, like it took Nehemiah and the people to build the wall. That's how long it would take me to build what you see there. But they spend hours putting uh, these sandcastles together, but then they spend several hours just trying to protect what they've built from all the, uh, the ocean trying to destroy what was created. And what's interesting is once we abandon that scene, this was across, just across the road from where we were staying, once, once uh, they abandoned the scene and overnight came and you come back the next day and, and there's, you can't even recognize this. It's gone, right? Because there was no one standing guard. There was no one there to protect against the forces of nature and everybody else who's, you know, just running on the beach and doesn't really value these sandcastles the way my kids did. Um, the reason I, I share this with you is because this is where we are in the story of the book of Nehemiah. We're at a place where the wall has been constructed. It's been finished. You remember Nehemiah had a burden to see the glory of God in Jerusalem be restored. And part of that journey was seeing a wall constructed around the city to protect and to defend what was within. And what was within, within the city of Jerusalem? It was the temple of our holy and amazing God. And so Nehemiah said, man, I don't want that to be destroyed. I don't want that to be impacted. I don't want that to be put to shame. And so there needs to be a wall to protect the glory of God. And so in 52 days from the time that Nehemiah arrived in the city, the people, despite tremendous opposition and, and despite, you know, odds against it, 
they finished the construction of the wall. And so we're going to pick up in, in chapter 7 here. And I want you to join me. If you have a, a Bible, we'll open it together. And uh, we're, we're going to read the first couple of verses as we begin. It says this, When the wall had been rebuilt, and I had the doors installed. I want to just pause right there because, in, in essence, the work has been completed. It's finished. The thing that Nehemiah was set out to do is now done. But there's no time to rest. Just like my kids with the sandcastle, there's, there's no time to just sit back and sit on our laurels and, and feel like, okay, the work's done, now I can just take it easy. Yes, the task of the wall was complete, but now there was an equally important task to secure what had been established. Let's look again at, at Nehemiah 7.1. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, the singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. You know, I find it interesting here, when I looked up the, the meaning behind these names, Hanani and Hananiah, what, what do those names mean in the Hebrew? Well, they literally mean this, gracious one, and the one who has experienced grace. I find it interesting that these men that are put in charge are men whose name literally means grace, or God's favor. God's favor was certainly upon them as they rebuilt the wall. And God's grace was upon these men, and they represent the grace of God to those around them. What does the grace of God enable these men to be and to do? Well, it says here that they were faithful and they were fearing the Lord. What does faithful mean? It means that they're a man of integrity. A man who is willing to say, you know what, no matter if somebody is watching or not, I'm going to be the man that God has called me to be. It's a man of integrity. And that's who was selected here. He was also a man who feared God. That, what is the fear in God? What is that all about, that concept of fearing God? Does it mean to tremble every time God's name is mentioned? Well, not necessarily. It means to stand in awe. To stand with a deep appreciation for who God is. And yes, there is a sense of, hey, I'm not going to mess with God and what he's instructed me to do. I'm not going to play games with that. Because God is somebody who is much more powerful than me, much more above my ways. And so I need to have a deep respect and awe. Literally, the word means to be a devout believer in God to understand who he is, and to have this respect and this appreciation and this surrender to that kind of God. You know, um, I'm going I'm to talk about another passage in the Bible. It's, in, it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And it also involves a man named Hanani, by chance. So you're going to learn about half of the Hananis in the entire scripture this morning. 
But I want to talk about the, the context in which 2 Chronicles was written. And this Hanani is a different Hanani than the one in Nehemiah's day. This guy lived several centuries before. And so what, ha- what is happening here is Israel and Judah had split apart in Israel. And the northern kingdom began to oppress or attack the southern kingdom. And there was a king over the southern kingdom of Judah. His name was Asa. And Asa sees that the northern king is coming after and attacking his kingdom. And rather than reach out to God, he decides that he's going to reach out to a foreign king for protection. And so he does, and he reaches out to the Aramean king. And he offers him up gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem, the Lord's treasury. He basically bribes or pays for a favor from a foreign king to come and to intervene in the dispute between Israel and Judah. And God is very upset. God is displeased that rather than consult him for protection, rather than go to the source of protection coming from God and the Lord, he went outside to a foreign nation and sought protection. And so he summons a man named Hanani. And Hanani appears before the king. And it's, it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And I'm just going to read a few verses. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer, or the prophet, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. God wanted to give him victory over his enemy over the foreign oppression of other kings and kingdoms. And yet, he has forfeited this opportunity for God to give him victory because instead he has gone and subjected himself to the king of Aram. Were not the Cushites or the Ethiopians and Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on Yahweh, when you depended on your God, he handed them over to you. Verse 9, where many of us are familiar with this verse, but this is the context in which this verse is shared. For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. Another version says, For the eyes of the Lord roam about, seeking to strengthen those who are fully committed to him. Principle number one that I find here in this text in Nehemiah chapter 7, which applies to all of us today, is this. God's always seeking people whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is always seeking people whose hearts are fully committed to him. In Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah was looking around and he saw these two men, Hanani and Hananiah. And he saw that these men were men who feared God. Men who were men of integrity, faithful men. And because of that, God said, select them. Put them in charge. I want to use them to build my kingdom, to oversee what my work. God is always looking for a people whose hearts are fully committed to him. Why? Because he wants to show himself strong in our world, in our families, in our lives. 
He wants to use our lives to show that he's for real, that he can make a difference, that he gives hope, that he restores hope. God is always looking for a people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And that leads to my first question. Are you wholeheartedly fearing the Lord? Are you faithfully obeying his will in your life? You see, that's not a question I can answer. That's only a question you can answer. Yes, God knows your heart. God knows where you stand with him. But the question is for real. It's a a self-evaluation moment. Are you wholeheartedly? It's an important part of that question. Wholeheartedly means with everything that you are, everything that you have, there is no hiding. Are you wholeheartedly fearing the Lord? In other words, is he your God? Is he the one that you bow your knee to and bow your will to? Are you faithfully obeying him in the areas of life in which you understand his will? You may not know everything that God has asked you to do and be, but the things that he has asked that you are aware of, are you being obedient? Are you submitting to him? You see, God wants our hearts, and he wants to use us. He wants to show himself strong. He wants to strengthen and bless us and bless others through us. But he's looking for vessels that are fully committed to him. Men and women, people. Look at verse 3 with me. I said to them, do not open the gates. This is Nehemiah talking. Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. And let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. Nehemiah recognized that even though the wall was constructed and the gates were put into place, there was still a threat. And he wanted the people to be on guard. And so he said, do not open the gates. Do not allow the gates to be accessed when, when what is happening? When there is darkness. When there is darkness. Make sure the sun is hot. What does that mean? That the sun is up in the sky? It's daytime. You can see clearly. That's when you can open the gates. That's when people can come and go. But you need to be on guard because there's darkness And the darkness is where the enemy will attack. It's within the context of darkness that the enemy has the advantage. And so Nehemiah doesn't want that to happen, and so he advises them to keep the doors shut when there's darkness. And to station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, In other words, they were assigned different posts throughout the city, maybe at the gates, maybe at different uh, points on the wall, but some at their homes. Even within the context of being at home, were they to let down their guard? No. The enemy can attack, whether we're on duty or whether we're at home. Principle number two, God's serious about always being on guard against the enemy. He knows the devastation and the destruction that the enemy wants to bring. He's aware of how the enemy works. He's familiar. He's acquainted 
with the devil. He knows what the devil did to mankind in the beginning, how he's impacted our entire world. Is it a good impact or is it a devastating impact that the devil has wielded upon this world? I think if we're honest, we all know that it's devastating. We've all been devastated by what the devil has been doing in our lives since the beginning. And God is serious about us being on guard against the enemy. You remember our series in 1 Peter? 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be serious, be alert, because your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith. There's two commands there. Resist him. Don't give in to the devil. Is he after us? Yes. Will he tempt us? Yes. What is our response to him? Resist. And stand firm in the faith. You've got to trust God. God knows better. God's will is better. God's ways are better. Do you believe it? Then let's live it. The question number two is this. Are you on guard against the darkness? Are you on guard against the darkness? Where is the darkness trying to invade your mind, your heart, and your home? Because believe me, the darkness is coming after us. And Nehemiah said, make sure that you don't open the door to darkness. Stay on guard against the darkness. What are you doing about it? What are you doing to guard against the darkness invading your mind, your heart, and your home? Verse 4, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. It's still just a wall, it's a temple, and a bunch of people trying to live in tents. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. Now we need to understand a little bit about this context, and I'm going to give it to you real briefly. There was a man named Zerubbabel in about 515 B.C., 70 years after Babylon, sacked Jerusalem, carried off half of the inhabitants into Jerusalem. You remember the man Daniel, he was one of them that was taken away into Babylon. But 70 years after that, that moment where Jerusalem was invaded and they were, their temple was destroyed, there was a man named Zerubbabel in 515 BC who felt compelled and who was given permission by the king to go and to restore the temple in Jerusalem. And then some 70 years went by, and there was a man named Ezra who came to Jerusalem with some people from Babylon. He journeyed. And then 14 years after him, we have this book, Nehemiah, and this man who felt called to go and build the wall around the city. And so there, were these, there was this movement of God among his people to bring them back to the city that bared his name and to inhabit it. And so what's interesting is Nehemiah says, hey, we found this record, this genealogical record of who came, 
Who came back from Babylon? Who left Babylon? After 70 years, hey, you can get comfortable in a place after 70 years, can you not? You can get settled in. You can start to adopt the values and the customs of those around you. But God, God had called his people to be separate, to be distinct from the surrounding culture. And yet, Babylon, man, they, many of them started to prosper. Even as subjects to the king of Babylon, they began to, man, this is actually kind of nice. My family's thriving. Everything looks good. Why should I journey to Jerusalem? Why should I go back? And yet Nehemiah says, man, these guys who said, I'm going to leave Babylon behind, and I'm going to follow what God wants for my life. He considers them heroes of the faith. And there was a genealogical record of them. And, and, and it's found in Ezra chapter 2, but it's also found in Nehemiah chapter 7. Now here's the thing. The two accounts are very lengthy, and there's some, there's some differences that exist between the two. So how are these differences explained? Because there's differences in some of the numbers. And there's critics who say, see, the Bible's not right. It's not accurate. It's not inspired because it's just, it's not consistent. Well, we don't have the full story, do we? Right? But if we had the full story, we would see the reality of what's taking place. But many have speculated that maybe the count in one place, like maybe in Ezra, the count was when they were in Babylon. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, there was a recount, so to speak. And is there things that change between when they first were counted and when they arrive? Sure, there can be changes, right? People could die on the journey. There were people who were born on the journey. Maybe some joined at the last minute that weren't part of the original census or count. And when they arrive, there's a new number that doesn't, isn't consistent with what the first count was. So we don't have the full story. Why is this detailed list included in our Bibles? That's my second question. Because it, God is a God of history. He wants to tell the real story of what took place. So there's a historical account. And it's even to the family, to the exact number of people that came. It's also a testament kind of like Hebrews 11, which lists a bunch of people that had left behind this world in order to follow Jesus, and it cost them dearly. He wants to give an account of a group of people who left behind Babylon to follow God's will to return to the land of Israel. And it took great faith to leave behind their comfort in Babylon. So what is the practical takeaway for this section? in our Bibles. God is concerned about every detail of our lives. He's sovereign over every detail of our lives. We will give an account of everything to God. Do you realize that? There's not one moment, one thought, one action that we take that we aren't going to be accountable before God one day. That's the reality that our Bible depicts. So God is sovereign over everything. Everything is exposed and laid bare before the God to whom we will give an account. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So we have this whole section here. 
And I'm just going to read verse 6 and 7 here. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvei, Nehem, and Bana. The number of Israelite men included. And then there's a list that includes people from 18 different families and clans. There's a list that includes inhabitants of 20 towns and villages. There's a list that describes the priests that came. 4,289 priests came back. Kind of makes sense because in Babylon they have nothing to do. Do you realize that? These men were the men where they're supposed to be serving in the temple of God. Well, the temple's back in Jerusalem. So it's time to pack up and go. You don't have a job in Babylon. Your job is in Jerusalem. Then it describes the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers. What's sad here is there was only 360 of these guys that were willing to come. There were thousands of Levites, and yet many of them seem to have settled down into comfort in Babylon. Only 360 brave men left behind Babylon to come and to help serve the priests with their duties at the temple. The temple servants and descendants of Solomon's servants are listed as well. And then there's a reference to 642 returnees who could not trace their ancestries, as well as a list of some of the slaves and the animals that came back to Jerusalem. What I wanted to zoom in, though, is, is this group of people, this interesting group of people that couldn't trace their ancestries. Because I think there's something here for us. And I'm going to read verses 61 through 63 or 64. The following are those who came from Telmalah, Telharasha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but were unable to prove that their families and ancestors were Israelites. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nakata's descendants. 642. There were 642 men who were unable to prove that they were even Israelites. And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakoz, the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These searched for the entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. What's interesting is you had to prove that you came from that line or you could not serve as a priest. You could not have a job. You could not have a future. You were disqualified from your role because you couldn't prove your ancestry. I think there's a lesson in there for us, and it leads to my principle number three. God's filling his city with those who possess the right ancestry. 
Do you realize that? Even today, God is filling a city. But you have to be able to prove your ancestry. If there's no proof that you belong, you will be disqualified. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says this. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's a picture of heaven. That's a picture of those who will fill the new Jerusalem, the city being prepared in heaven by God. They're from every tribe, language, nation, and people group. So certainly the ancestry is not about being Israelite anymore, is it? It's not a physical ancestry that God is concerned with. It's a spiritual one. John chapter 8, Jesus talks about this. John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, speaking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that were always yelling and complaining about his ministry and who he was, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. What is Jesus alluding to here? He's alluding to this spiritual ancestry. Your father is one of two people. Your father is either Father God in heaven or your father is the devil. We are all following one of those two. We are all listening to one of those two. Do you know who your father is? Can you prove your ancestry? Let me say, if you're not sure this morning, that's okay because I'm going to read three verses that you can Decide if you understand who your father is. Listen, John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus says these words. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. You would love me. How do you know if God is your father? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Let me, t- let me take you to the next verse. Because you can determine, how do I know if I love Jesus? Jesus tells us how we can determine that. John chapter 14, verse 21. If you love me, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. How do you know if you love Jesus? Do you have his commands and are you keeping them? What are Jesus' commands, you might ask? Good question. Let's go to the answer. 1 John 3, verse 23. This is his command, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and that he rose again from the grave to prove that he is God? If that is your belief, and you love like he has loved you, your father is in heaven. Praise God, right? And if you have never made that decision to believe in Jesus Christ, the invitation is open this morning. 
The invitation is open. It's very clear. You're either a father, your father is either the devil, or your father is God in heaven. And God in heaven wants to adopt you into his family. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price that that adoption demands. He wants to adopt you into his family. No longer do you have to be the son of the devil. You can be adopted by the Father in heaven. But it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through faith. That's how we can see that our ancestry is the right ancestry. That we won't be disqualified from what God has intended for us. Do you know who your father is this morning? I'm going to wrap up with a final principle from this text. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come because we're going to respond this morning and praise and worship. But verse 66 of Nehemiah says this, The whole combined assembly numbered 42,360. 42,360 men, women, and children came back. They came back. They left Babylon, and they came back to the land of Israel. What's cool about that is there were millions who went into subjectivity in Babylon, millions of Jews, and yet only 42,360 by faith said, we're going to leave Babylon behind. And we're going to choose to, by faith, to follow what God has called us to be and do, to return to the land. And out of these 42,360 men, women, and children, God used them to rebuild the wall and to secure what was built moving forward. Listen to the way the chapter ends, verse 70. Some of the family leaders gave to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family leaders gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minas to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, Some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. What is the fourth principle? The fourth principle is this. God's amazing work should inspire our worship. God's amazing work was accomplished through his people. It was accomplished through his son on a cross. Does that inspire you? Does that inspire you to worship him? Does he have your heart? today? Does it inspire you to give of yourself, to give of your praise, to give of your generosity to the mission work that we heard about earlier, to the mission work that's happening around the world? God's amazing work should inspire our worship. It inspired the people back then. They gave. They worshiped him in joy. How are you contributing to God's kingdom? Ask yourself that. Am I contributing? Am I a contributing member of God's kingdom? You can, you can contribute with your time. You can contribute with your talent. You can contribute with your treasure. The question is, are you contributing to God's work? Let's worship this morning.
Nein, 